Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. This edition of Louisiana Eats takes a long look back at the year that was 2021, its challenges and its losses. Many restaurants and bars have closed their doors in the last two years, but when Joanne Clevenger announced that New Orleans' beloved Upper Line restaurant would not reopen after initially closing in March 2020, the entire city reeled with the news. We'll hear from Joanne about what made the Upper Line so magical. The future of the English Tea Room in Covington seemed in doubt when news broke of owner Tim Lantrip's accident. Hit by a truck while crossing Boston Street on an October weekday afternoon, for a while it was uncertain if he would recover. Fortunately, his wife Jan, who's also been his business partner for the last 20 years, reports he's making progress every day in his recovery, while she and the devoted employees keep the fires burning at the English Tea Room. We'll revisit a lovely tea we enjoyed with the land trips in spring 2021, and then we'll remember my friend and colleague Daphne Durbin, who passed away in October of last year. A New Orleans resident since 2009, Daphne made her mark on our urban farming and agriculture scene before becoming the curator of education at the historic New Orleans collection where she was instrumental in developing the new children's education wing at their Royal Street facility. We're taking a long look back to remember all that has been with hopes of brighter days ahead on this week's Louisiana Eats. Among the New Orleans legends lost in 2021 was Anne Rice, the gothic novelist known internationally for her 1976 book, Interview with the Vampire. For locals, Rice was not just a literary superstar, but also a neighbor who cared deeply about her city. In 1997, Popeye's founder, Al Copeland, offended Anne to the core by opening Straya in a former Mercedes-Benz dealership on St. Charles Avenue. Copeland's new restaurant was a bit garish, painted bright peach and adorned with a lot of shiny silver stars and circles. Anne was horrified. You see, that was the spot she immortalized when her beloved vampire, Lestat, glimpsed his reflection and ceased to exist at the end of her novel, Memnock the Devil. Anne took out a full-page ad in the Times-Picayune, claiming that compared with Copeland's new restaurant, I quote, The humblest flophouse on this strip of St. Charles Avenue has more dignity. 
In October of last year, Louisiana Eats got the full story on Copeland, Rice, and their public squabble from historian Sally Asher while we toured Metairie Cemetery. Walking along a stretch many call Millionaire's Row, we came upon both Copeland's tomb and Rice's family mausoleum, located a short distance from each other. Well, here we are at perhaps one of today's most famous tombs, the fried chicken king, Al Copeland himself. Or infamous, however you want to say that. So Al Copeland was born in New Orleans in 1944. He was the youngest of three sons. His family was very poor. In fact, he spent some time in the St. Thomas Public Housing Project. In 1972, he founded Popeye's Chicken in Araby, calling it Popeye's Mighty Good Chicken. No apostrophe in the Popeyes. He later joked that he was too poor to afford an apostrophe. Three weeks into it, which is very rare and almost unheard of, the restaurant started turning a profit. And by 1989, he owned the third largest chicken chain in the country. I love that Chris Rose called him our own Elvis, New Orleans' own Elvis. So Copeland was known for his over-the-top lifestyle, multiple marriages. He was married four times. Uh, they all ended in divorce. Uh, his Lamborghinis, his boats, he would have giant Christmas decorations up on his house in Metairie. But what he's probably most famous for, and this was one of my first tastes of New Orleans, was when he got into a fight with the vampire queen, Anne Rice. In Mardi Gras 1997, he opened a restaurant, a giant California cuisine restaurant called Strea on St. Charles Avenue. And it's this peach colored, neon lit, metal palm trees, gold panthers with, with faux diamond collars on them. And Anne Rice took out a full page ad, calling it a monstrosity. So he took out full page ads attacking her, saying he was going to sleep with garlic underneath his pillow and he was going to carry crucifix. And it went back and forth and multiple litigations. And eventually the suits were dropped. Obviously, nobody told him that you can't take it with you. Anybody who lived in New Orleans at the time of Al Copeland's funeral will remember seeing the Lamborghinis, the cigarette boats, all with a somber black ribbon decorating them, but grouped all around his tomb. They had his motorcycles, his boats, his cars packed. His three ex-wives, three out of his four, because one had died, were all here. The funeral director, Jerry Shane, said they were all crying and hugging. Uh, they released 11 doves into the air. 11 was Al Copeland's lucky number and 111 balloons. And it was quite a spectacle for all to see. Now, one of the most fascinating things is that it seems like the great vampire novelist, Anne Rice, she might be getting the last laugh here on Millionaire's Row. It is. Ironically, they will eventually be neighbors. Her family tomb is located on the same strip, just a short walk down from Al Copeland's. Well, here we are at Al Copeland's neighbor, Anne Rice and the Rice family tomb. So it is assumed that Anne Rice will one day be buried in this tomb. 
But what makes me wonder is she's already had so many funerals, what her real funeral is going to be like. She was famous when she lived in New Orleans during the height of the Vampire series that she would do a lot of her book signings at the Garden District Bookshop, emerging from a hearse once she drove up in a hearse in a coffin, and characters who were dressed like the Scream villain from the movie series carried her coffin out and she got out and she waved and signed autographs. Another time, she was put in a coffin at Lafayette Number no. 1, which is also where what is known as the Lestat tomb is located. They put her in a glass horse-drawn hearse with the jazz band and brought her down to the Garden District Bookshop where she was wearing a white wedding gown and she got up and shook hands and she signed books. And I read an interview with her once in the UK that she mentions it, how she had been to her own funeral and how she could lay in the coffin and she could hear the jazz music and she could feel every bump and jolt along the way on her funeral and that it was a wonderful experience. From October 2021, that was author and historian Sally Asher, who also owns and operates Red Sash Tours in New Orleans. When I die, you better second life. When I die, you better second life. You better strike up the band every day of the week. Red my soul up and down the street when I die. Oh Lord, we on a second line. The first time I remember meeting Daphne Durbin, she dazzled me by bringing history to life, recreating the action of a 19th century open hearth kitchen at the Herman Grima House in New Orleans French Quarter, where she was working as a consultant. Our paths crossed many times over the years, in far-flung places such as Slow Food Solane del Gusto in Turin and the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture outside of New York City, where she served as the founding director of programs. Daphne moved to New Orleans in 2009, becoming part of what the Times-Picayune described as the post-Katrina brain gain, working in urban agriculture projects for the New Orleans Food and Farm Network and the Emerald Lagasse Foundation. The foundation's signature Boudin Bourbon and Beer event has been a fixture on the local charity scene for a decade, but when we spoke with Daphne in 2011, the inaugural event was just weeks away and she was busy building out its website. To create a cyber source for all things Boudin, Daphne roamed the back roads of Louisiana and chronicled her adventures online. She joined us to tell us some of what she'd learned. Daphne, welcome to Louisiana Eats. Thank you so much, Poppy. It's a pleasure. In case there might be an uninitiated person out in the audience, would you explain what is boudin? Well, boudin is our very own sausage, and it's quite unique because it uses rice in the sausage. And I have yet to find another sausage anywhere that does that. It's frequently eaten as a breakfast food. A lot of people pick up a boudin when they get their gas at the gas station. On Sundays, a lot of families have a little boudin and some crackers when they get home from church. So it's pork and various pork parts, rice, liver, pork liver, 
the Trinity, green onions, and various seasonings. Now, the portions of that and how it's put together is a very hotly individualized thing, which is why it's so much fun to try different boudins. And the casing, there are different methods of eating it. If the casing is crisp and firm, a lot of people go ahead and eat the casing. But in many cases, people just remove it from the casing and either eat the filling or shape it into boudin balls or some other creation. Now, tell me about your blog. Well, this was quite a treat for me because I have never blogged before. So I am getting very into it, and it's called Adventures in Boudin. And I interviewed uh, Chef David Slater at Emerald's Restaurant, who makes fresh boudin every week and did the whole process. And then from there, I've gone to other chefs who are part of our boudin and beer event. And I've also interviewed the musicians and the artists associated with the event. So how did this boudin obsession begin? Well, I think once upon a time when I visited here a long time ago, somebody said, have you ever had our boudin? And I said, no, but I love sausage. And so they handed me a boudin and I fell in love. And I really, uh, since I've moved here, have made it my goal to try as many versions as possible. Well, tell me about some of the places that you visited in search of this perfect link of Boudin. Well, in Bowbridge, we went to several places, and my favorite was a place called Charlie T's, which had names of the people posted on the wall that they didn't accept checks from anymore. <laughs> And which had all sorts of lovely things stuffed with boudin, but also had very yummy hot boudin balls, which were a second breakfast. I must admit, I'd already had a first breakfast of boudin at Pochet's, but just had to have more. And from there in St. Martinville, I liked Joyce's Supermarket, which in addition to having fresh hot boudin, has meat specials, which are like combos of meat you can buy. And my favorite was the Runaway Bride mixture. The Runaway Bride <laughs> mixture? Yeah. Doesn't that sound fun? I mean, wouldn't you just buy it just to have it? What, what kind of meat does the Runaway Bride pack along? Well, there are many pork parts, but, <laughs> but there were also some beef parts as well. But it was the pork parts that I was attracted to. I'm very fond of all things piggy. <laughs> well, tell me. In all your traveling and all your tasting, do you have a favorite? Uh, one of my favorites is Donald Link's Boudin Balls on the Koshan menu. And then he also sells fresh boudin in Butcher. And both of those have been quite tasty lunches, breakfasts, and everything else for me. Well, I read on your blog that Donald Link sometimes makes his boudin into a pie. Yes, he does. He's, he's really pushing the envelope with things to do with boudin. And I think that's partially because he loves it so much. In fact, he's the one that said a Cajun seven-course meal is a link of boudin and a six-pack. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> Doesn't that sound great? Yeah. So what what was that pie like? It wasn't my favorite. Okay. I'm, I'm a little more of a classic boudin girl. 
I am very fond of it for breakfast, and I'm particularly fond of putting Steen's cane syrup on it. Well, that makes perfect sense, because cane syrup is Louisiana's maple syrup, isn't it? Exactly. (laughs) I like them smoked sometimes. Yes. When the skin gets crispy. And in fact, Donald Link talked about that, that he does like to charcoal grill them to get the skin nice and crispy, because that gives it a very different consistency than the usual steamed or uh, kind of poached method that we use. And when you visit the website, you can see pictures of your adventures and everything. Yes, and my adventures uh, in Boudin blog is such fun. I want to mention that the Lost Bayou Ramblers are performing. There are headliners and I interviewed Louis Michaud, who I think I know has been on your show. Yes. And he talked to me about Boudin and he said that he thinks of Boudin as a Cajun push pop. <laughs> That's a great description. Well, I can't wait for the big event. I look forward to it. And I want to thank you so much for coming to visit with us. My pleasure. Thank you. My dear friend Daphne Durvin speaking with us in October 2011. Daphne went on to become the Curator of Education at the Historic New Orleans Collection. While there, she developed the Children's Educational Wing of their Royal Street facility. After a battle with cancer, Daphne passed away in October 2021. The HNOC honored her memory by establishing the Durban Scholars Program for those interested in historical research, writing, and education. You can learn more and make a donation in her honor at www.hnoc.org. After almost 40 years in business, New Orleans Upper Line Restaurant closed for good in 2021. Coming up next, we revisit our conversation with owner Joanne Clevenger. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. (laughs) 
For nearly 40 years, Joanne Clevenger plied her special brand of hospitality in the rooms of an old Victorian uptown house on Upper Line Street. With walls covered in amazing works of art, each with its own special tale, countless locals and visitors made the Upper Line their own. In November of 2021, Joanne announced that she would not be reopening her beloved establishment. Currently, the restaurant and its art collection are for sale. Let's revisit part of our special conversation with Joanne from 2016, beginning with her memories of childhood. Joanne, you are such an amazing woman. It's very hard for me to know where to begin. But let's begin with the fact that you were not a native New Orleanian. That's right, puppy. I am Louisiana. I really am Louisiana. I was really influenced in food by my grandfather and my grandmother. I was born in Alexandria, Louisiana, and my father hunted and fished, and we, we ate what he caught and what he shot. My grandfather, my most vivid memory, is a mule and a plow. But we had good food, and it was well-prepared. And so when I came to New Orleans and was exposed to the French market, that all the wholesale fish people, the produce people were down here, Solaris, all the restaurants, my brain just did all kinds of flip-flops because I didn't even know that people ate shrimp when they were cold. I thought they were just fried. <laughs> and I certainly had never seen a little oval platter in all the cafeterias, the A&G cafeteria, everybody had a shrimp room a lot. And they were always on a little tiny oval platter. And I became obsessed with them. Sort of. <laughs> and I think that's what led to my great discovery uh, later at the Upper Line, where I finally figured out to put shrimp room a lot on top of a fried green tomato. I put it in a little oval platter. <laughs> Joanne, I think a lot of people... Of course, they know you as the great restaurateur of the Upalon restaurant, but you have had so many different careers besides restaurateur that you seem to be a cat with more than nine lives. And I'm just really lucky. <laughs> and you know, part of my luck, a big part of my luck, is being born to a family that love to take books and food and going to good public schools, but being raised in North Louisiana with that Protestant work ethic and always show up for the meeting. You come to the Big Easy and you always show up for the meeting on time. You get to do things. You get to do things. <laughs> Upon moving to New Orleans in her 20s, Joanne's career took her in many directions. She ran a folk music bar, opened the Abbey on Decatur Street, had flower vending carts, and even opened a vintage clothing store called Matilda's. So there you are in your vintage clothing store, happy as a clam. Yeah, I was, actually. <laughs> and a building uptown comes up for sale. What possessed you to change course again? I was looking for a way to open a second store near the universities. And I was driving past Kirsch's Jeans Barbecue Restaurant on my way back to the quarter. And it said, for a lease. So I called when I got back to the quarter. And the lady said, oh, it's no longer for lease. Today, the owners decided to sell the building. And all the years I've been this serial entrepreneur, I never could afford a building. And the first thought when she said it was for sale was how much. So I said, how much? 
<laughs> That's great bargaining power. <laughs> and, and it was just the little tiny first room you come in. It was 112000 And the first thought that went through my brain was, I think I could do that. Oh, gosh. And I, and I got so excited, I couldn't remember the word option. So I had this long, convoluted question about, whereby if I gave you a certain amount of money, would you, would you, would you promise not to sell it to anybody? <laughs> oh. So I persuaded my husband, at my, that's my second husband, Alan Greenacre, to take a second mortgage on our house. He's an engineer. I persuaded my son, Jason Clevenger, to quit his job as a head chef at Cafe Sabiza's. We bought the building. We did the work. And we opened January 83 with 40 chairs and no money for the first week's payroll. Of course, there were very few uptown restaurants then, and so we got a nice honeymoon. And it was exciting. Um, when we first opened, we had a charcoal grill. There were very few restaurants. Jason had put in a charcoal grill at Sabiza's before he left, and we had one, so we did grill fish, which was very new on charcoal in New Orleans at that time. When I, I, I looked at a menu today from when we first opened, and some of the dishes we still have on the menu are there. They've evolved. We had a shrimp roumoulade then. We have a shrimp roumoulade now. But we put it on top of the fried green tomatoes. We had roast duck on our menu, and it's evolved. I've had six main chefs, and each of them is reflected on today's menu. And I'm really proud of that, that it's a collaborative effort. It's not one person that's driven this engine. It's a collaboration. The front of the house, the back of the house, all six of these chefs, of course, the guests and their feedback and the media and the vendors, but it's not a single entity, not a single person that does this. It's a collaborative effort. And the signature dishes now, two of them, well, I think the fried green tomatoes is the one that's the most famous because so many people have copied it. Now it's it's made millions of people happy. <laughs> um but after Katrina, there's two dishes that are on the menu that have proved to be extraordinarily popular. And the Oyster St. Claude was actually inspired by Mandich's not reopening. And so Chef Ken Smith and I got that dish together. I'm really good at coming up with ideas. I have a really good ability to taste things. And I also have the experience to know what some, not always, but sometimes what the guests will enjoy and what is practical to produce in the kitchen. Because no matter how many great dishes you think of, you've got to be able to produce it in the kitchen without disrupting the line. And so then the next dish was, I didn't want to go to France or England after Katrina, so my husband, Alan Greenacre, and my son, Jason Clevenger, we drove to Birmingham. And one of the restaurants we went to was the Hot and Hot Fish Club, Chris Hastings. And I was so intrigued by the name Hot and Hot Fish Club. I said, I'm going to invent a dish we can call hot and hot, because he didn't have one on the menu. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I did. And again, Chef Ken and I worked on that dish for weeks, and both of them have been amazingly popular. I sincerely believe that if you put a parameter around trying to think of something, whether it's a costume for the theater or whether it's a dish for a menu, that it helps your brain to stretch. It has to be red. It has to be made for a very tall, large lady. Your brain does things that it wouldn't do. Is mm, I need a costume. And that's the way it was with um, the oyster St. Claude, the hot and hot shrimp. And it really was the way it was with the fried green tomatoes, too. Because when I heard they were going to make a movie about fried green tomatoes, I said, oh, my gosh, we got to have a dish. And it needs to be on a little oval platter. <laughs> <laughs> you and the oval platters. You really are the restaurant, Joanne. When people go to the upper line, 
if you were to not be there, I think they might just about fall down. <laughs> well, I'm pretty consistent. I am. Uh, I think that's, again, that North Louisiana work ethic. But part of it also is being a waitress and learning to come out of myself because before that I was a bookworm. And if you're a waiter or waitress, you have to become gregarious. You have to look at the guest as someone you want to enhance their experience. And when I finally found out about 25 years ago, the original meaning of the word restaurant, restorative, I was so relieved because it made sense the whole thing. Again, it's a benevolent circle. We restore the guest, whether it's a diner or a hot dog stand or haute cuisine. If you do it right, your guests come in after the hassles of the day, and you nourish them in spirit and body, and they go away stronger, braver, and enhanced. And that's a restorative. No one eats at the upper line. No one dines at the upper line without having in some way, the touch of Joanne Clevenger. You're always checking on everybody. You've got an eye on all the tables. I just think that in many ways, you take hospitality to a level that we rarely see it in the world today. I think you're right. Um, but that, again, is a, a passion and a compulsion in a way. Because I guess, Poppy, in, in some ways, I want the world to be a better place. And I'm not a school teacher, and I'm not a registered nurse or doctor, but in my own little way, I can help people to feel better about their lives for a little while and feel nurtured and celebratory because restaurants celebrate life. They celebrate the occasion. They make occasions more memorable because of the hospitality and because of the shared experience. Sometimes I talk about restaurants are about strangers breaking bread together. And I think it makes us more tolerant of each other. And I think in the long run, it makes us more appreciative of our lives. And sometimes we forget that our lives are not a dress rehearsal. So I really think we should grab the day, live for today, and and be of some good in the world. With your over 30 years in the business now, Joanne, what do you hope that your legacy in this industry will be? That the people that work with us over the years go on to have it make a difference in their lives because that's the other part of having a restaurant. You hire people, and sometimes you can nurture them into a place where they want to go. They didn't even realize they wanted to go. And so I think the legacy I want to think about is what have we done for the people that work with us? And maybe also, what have we done for the people who are our guests and our customers? Because I know that we have a place in their hearts and for some of them because they'll come back and they haven't been in 20 years. And they say, oh, I'm so glad to see you. I was hoping so much you would be here. And so we, we have a place in other people's spirits and hearts. And that's good to know. Joanne, Thank you so much for being our guest on Louisiana Eats and sharing your amazing story with us. I'm Thank a lucky you. person. I'm such a lucky person. Thank you, Poppy. It was a, a lovely thing to be with you. Joanne Clevenger of the Upper Line Restaurant, speaking with us in 2016. In November 2021, 
Joanne announced she would not be reopening her restaurant after being shuttered by the pandemic in 2020. much-loved fried chicken chain made its debut 50 years ago this year? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor and from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What much-loved fried chicken chain made its debut 50 years ago this year? Well, of course, it's Popeye's. Entrepreneur and showman Al Copeland hailed from humble beginnings. Raised by a single mom, at one point Al and his brothers lived in the St. Thomas housing project. At 18, Al sold his car to buy a Tasty Donut franchise from his brother Gil. That initial fast food experience led him to open his first Popeyes in St. Bernard Parish down in Araby. Over the next 20 years, he grew the business to include over 300 stores before losing Popeyes in a merger with Church's Fried Chicken. Although he lost Popeyes, he cleverly retained the rights to the secret seasoning blend with his company, diversified foods and seasonings. Al succumbed to cancer of the salivary glands on Easter Sunday, 2008, at the age of 64. Today, Popeyes is owned by Restaurant Brands International, operating thousands of stores across the country and the globe, including most recently Popeyes locations in London and Mexico City. I'm Poppy Tooker, and Popeye's Fried Chicken makes for some good Louisiana Eats.
just across Lake Pontchartrain, in the quaint little downtown of Covington, there's a charming yellow cottage filled with English tradition and taste. That's the English Tea Room, established in 2002 by Jan and Tim Lantrip. Guests of the establishment experience one of the finest high teas to be found anywhere on this side of the pond. When we sat down with Jan and Tim, we knew we were in for a spot of tea, but had no idea of the wealth of knowledge about to be served up with it. I'm Jan Lantrop, and I'm the owner of the English Tea Room. And I'm Tim Lantrop, and I work for Jan. <laughs> I'm originally from northeast Texas, and up there 25 years ago, the, some of the little towns had tea rooms. And my mother would go to them with my aunts. And so we said, well, what is that? So we went to one. We thought that was really interesting. And then Jan's a pharmacist, so she started reading studies on tea and all the health benefits of tea. And kind of out of that, we just thought we would open a little shop and sell tea. That's all we intended to do. And then from that over, we've been in business now almost 20 years. And over the years, it's just evolved we didn't create it, just evolved into what it is now. Jan, how did your interest in tea begin? Well, it began going to compounding school in Houston. Most pharmacies don't compound. You do have to have specialty training. And what that involves is creating something that's not manufactured by a drug company. So I worked in a lab where they were doing research on tea, the polyphenols, the actual elements of tea that create the health benefits. You decide to leave pharmacy and go into tea. How did you all make that jump? Well, it really wasn't a jump. It kind of collided. (laughs) And we did both. I did both at the same time. Tim is a decorator and a collector. Tim's ancestry is British and Scottish. Very strong. Everything in his DNA is totally okay so he had a natural love of this whole scene but with me I was still doing pharmacy up until last year I had a dual career I would come in and splash a bit of tea around or educate was one of my passions talking about tea letting the customers understand what is tea how do you make tea you can't make a cup of coffee unless you know how to make it. You have to know how much coffee to put in the pot, how much water to add. The temperature is important. And so it is with tea, but a little more detail because we have so many varieties from just fruits and herbs to black teas that come from Assam and Kenya and India and Nepal and South Africa. These big, malty, big mouth teas, you know, and you have to know how to brew it to get that feel and bring out all that essence The world of tea is fascinating, and it's so varied. Coffee's coffee, and it's great, but when you step into the world of tea, get ready for an adventure. Tim, your collections here are simply astounding. Are you like those folks we see on PBS? Are you a picker, or what do you do exactly? You know, I'm a treasure hunter, and I'm always looking. Every I have certain stores that I go to. When we go to England, they don't have garage sales there. They call them boot fairs. And it's just a big field, and that people will drive their cars and park them in the field. 
and open their trunks, which they call boots over there, and sell out of the trunk of their car. So we've gotten a lot of things there. Um, but uh, I'm always looking for something from England that's really special. Sometimes we'll have customers that'll just walk in and give us things. I mean, we've got a World War One cigarette case with the Prince of Wales, the uh, regiment uh, on it. Uh, I've got a uh, signed letter from Churchill's father. Uh, uh, one of our customers gave us uh, a newspaper printout of Queen Victoria's when she was crowned queen in what was it, 1832 or 33, and it's got everybody that was in her procession, and oh, we just get incredible things come through, and I just love that. I love history, and I love that connection to the past. England has such a rich history, and we're never finished. You're all we don't have any really space to put things anymore. We'll just rotate out, whatever. Yeah. Just then, Sue, an actual British expat who lends a certain authenticity to the experience, served our refreshments. On a tiered silver tray, there was an amazing assortment of scones, spreads, tea sandwiches, and sweets. Um, we have cheese and bacon, spinach and artichoke, spanakopita. They are spinach and uh, ricotta cheese. Then we have some fresh fruit. Then on the top, we have our chocolate-dipped strawberries pedophiles and macaroons. With over a hundred teas to choose from, along with every imaginable tea accessory, the sights and scents of this magical apothecary are simply dizzying. You know, everything adds to the experience. So when you put that fine porcelain to your lips and you drink that tea, it tastes different. That's like when you drink wine or champagne, how that, that fine, thin glass is so important for the full experience as it is with tea. And the teapot, pouring the tea, the shape of the teapot, the silver from England that we have, and all of that adds to your experience of having tea. You know, Jan, I spend a lot of time in restaurants talking to chefs, and this is the first place that I have ever visited that tea is such an integral part of the recipes here. Would you talk to me about cooking with tea? You know, if you have a raspberry tea, why not make a raspberry dressing? Why not use that tea, the flavor profile of these different teas, and add it to the food? So sure enough, that one of my first recipes was a raspberry vinaigrette made, and we still use that. We use raspberry tea in the recipe. The next thing I started looking at, why add extra water or broth to a soup? Why not use it like we use wine? Add another level, another dimension. I had this lady from England come to teach me how to make scones. We had a partners uh, that were working for us, some managers that we hired from England, and Auntie Jan came to visit. And she was a home economics teacher in England. And what a fussy budget she was. But I adored her. She, we shared the same name. But she was a tyrant. She was like Julia Child. You know, in that she, had, she made all of her own clothes. She was a perfectionist. And one of the things she did was to teach me how to make a proper scone. And I'm telling you, I couldn't do it to save my life. It took me weeks. She would throw them away. I would cry. I'd go back in. Let's do it again. And this time, get it right. Everything had to be 
flour, the sugar, the ratios, different flours, different sugars, and cut just a certain way. I adored her. And at the end, we had success and friendship everlasting. <laughs> That's just grand. I have heard that a certain Sir Anthony Hopkins is a big fan of your scones. Tell that, me about that little That's a great story. A few years ago, or some years ago, they were filming a movie around here, and he was the star of the movie. Someone would come by here once or twice a week and get tea and scones for him, because he's from England, he liked, and he liked our scones. So when they finished the movie, they had an end-of-the-movie party in Hollywood, he bought 350 scones and picked them up one morning and flew them there for the afternoon. That oh. was pretty neat. <laughs> There's nothing like knowing that your scones are on a private plane yeah, in the going, afternoon, right, right, huh? Yeah, going to, going to Hollywood, that's pretty good. So. Satiated in mind, body, and spirit, I had to know what was next in store for the English Tea Room. Some years ago, we were in Mobile, and I was watching that a movie around the world in 80 days. You remember that show? Yeah. When we were kids, and it was a great show. And it was all about the English on this race around the world. It's taken 80 days to cover the world. But he, there's a little scene in there where you got two old men sitting at a desk, and in the background, a bell rings, and the guy looks at his watch, and he goes, oh, uh, 4 p.m., time for tea. Oh, yeah, so they close everything, stop everything. They get up, walk out of the room, they go have tea. Well, I did a little research, and in England, they used to ring the bell at 4 o'clock, and it would tell the people it was tea time. Well, that's pretty interesting. They don't do it much anymore, but that was a time. So we've located a place to get a, a nice old 150-year-old bell, oh. and I've got an architect drawing the plans. We're going to build a little bell tower here, and we're going to get that bell, and then every day at whatever time we do it here, 2 or 2.30, 3, 4, whatever it is, Someone's going to ring the bell, and it's time for tea. So that gives another layer for Covington, you know, with all the things going on here. But I, I love that. So uh, anyway, that's that's our big project coming up. Well, thank you for welcoming me over here and for all of the incredible things that you shared to eat and drink and to learn. Well, thank you. Glad you came. It was wonderful. Love having you here. That's a treat for us. Jan and Tim Lantrip speaking to Louisiana Eats during our visit to Covington's English Tea Room in spring 2021. Tim was hospitalized and then in a rehab facility for almost two months following a terrible accident in October 2021. It was touch and go for quite some time. As he regained his strength, he became known as Miracle Tea Man up and down the halls of the hospital. On December 23rd, Jan was blessedly able to bring Tim home. Truly a Christmas miracle. Jan and Tim want to thank everyone for their prayers and hope to see you all at the English Tea Room in 2022.
That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Start off the new year right with reservations for Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Queen Brunch at Two Jacks, Sunday, January 30th. Learn more by calling the restaurant at 504-525-8676. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily, for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Parmelo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longlinay, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.